Hi, this is Jonathan with uh, Jonathan Mickles with the Strategic Multifamily Investing Podcast. And today I have with me Kim Lisa Taylor. Um, um, let me see. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Who, who are you with? What kind of organization are you with? So I'm uh, the founder of Syndication Attorneys. Um, our website, syndicationattorneys.com. We help uh, entrepreneurs who are raising money, mostly for real estate, but could be for anything. Uh, that uh, So we do all of their securities offering documents for them. We provide deal structuring advice and, and uh, set up their companies and uh, draft the operating agreements. Um, we also do joint venture agreements and um, just anything that's related to using other people's money. That's our niche. That's a good thing because um, we need all of those. So you, we, we kept talking, you referred to securities a couple of times, and I know that there are some people who are in multifamily that are doing securities and some people who are doing joint ventures. And some people say that there is different types. That, what is securities law? Let's talk about that real quick. What is securities law? So we have a definition. Sure. Um, so when you are selling interest in a company, then you're selling something called an investment contract because these investors are investing in, in a common enterprise. They're expecting you to generate a profit for them. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that, we have passive investors that are relying on you to generate the profit. You're selling uh, something called an investment contract. Investment contracts are securities. So if you look in the definition of what is a security from the 1933 Securities Act or from any state securities act, uh, you'll see this big long definition. It's about a half page long, but investment contracts are in there. Also in there are promissory notes. So some of you that might be borrowing money from people should be aware that if you're doing that repeatedly and your business depends on it, you are also selling securities and so securities laws would apply to you. But when you're selling investment contracts, definitely securities laws apply. And so what does that mean? That means that you either have to register your offering by going public and getting pre-approval from regulators before you can sell it to anybody, um, which is like, you know, an IPO. That's what Facebook mm -hmm. did, Google did. It, mm -hmm. You know, it takes a long time and it's very expensive. So right. the alternative to that is to qualify for an exemption from registration. And uh, the exemptions each have a very specific set of rules. And so once you learn what the rules are for your exemption, then you have to document how you followed those rules and uh, have the proper documentation to give to your investors. And then there's some filings that we do with the securities agencies to tell them what you're doing. And um, that's, that's kind of what, uh, what it means to be selling securities. There, there's a couple of questions you've just raised uh, here. Okay. You mentioned going back to your earlier, you know, uh, definition and in your definition, you mentioned people who are borrowing money, you know, consistently. Now, is that borrowing money from a bank, borrowing money from some of the agencies, or is that borrowing money from private, pr private people? Private people and, and people who are not holding themselves out to be in the business of lending. So, you know, if you're borrowing from a hard money lender, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But if you're borrowing from your, uh, you know, your um, acquaintances that you meet at your real estate investment association meetings, then, uh, you know, individuals with self-directed IRAs and things like that, that's when you need to start thinking about complying with securities laws. And, and really that means following these exemptions, which is probably going to require that you, uh, well, it will require that you disclose all the material facts, including right. the risks of investing with you. And then there might be some filings that you have to do as well. So, so, and for anybody else who's, who's listening, um, we're going to have, 
one of the guys who wrote the book on risk for the Project Management uh, Institute, uh, joining us talking specifically about some of the risk in multifamily. But when you talk about holding out and, and disclosing risk, you know, I, again, I'm going back to something I asked a little bit earlier. You know, sometimes people go to the RIA, RIA stands for Real Estate Investment Association, for those who don't know. And, you know, they meet people who may be interested in working with them on a multifamily project. And they say, oh, well, let's just joint venture. Because if we joint venture, then we, you know, it's not a security. And so we don't have to follow these security laws. That's what I hear. Now, I could be incorrect in saying that. But is there something? Is there such a beast in terms of the way to, to do business like that? Yes. Uh, so there, you always need to understand the difference between a joint venture and a security. So I mentioned when you're selling securities, it's when you have passive investors that are relying on you to make a profit for them. In a joint venture, all of the partners have to be actively involved in generating their own profits. So it's more than just a voting right. They actually have to meaningfully participate in the investment. You don't take control of their money. So they're not putting their money in a bank account that you make all the decisions on how you're going to spend it. You know, when you need money for a project, you're going to ask them to make that deposit. And then you're going to go ahead and spend it according to what the two of you or however many of you there are have agreed to. Exactly. exactly. This reminds me of something when I was taking the uh, certified investor agent specialist designation, when we were teaching that, we would say, if you're going to be meeting with a group of investors who are going to be doing something with residential real estate, everybody needed to have a say in, in that particular thing. Um, uh, otherwise, you could be, you know, working with a security. Thank you very much for clarifying that. So, sure. um, so well, then, the thing, let me just mention one more thing about joint sure. ventures. Joint ventures are great for three or four people. They're never great for more than five. Okay. So yeah. three or four, no more than five. If you're getting more than five, you might as well just go ahead and go into the securities thing. That's right. That's right. And, and my experience with doing hundreds of these offerings is that when you get more than five people in a joint venture that you can't agree on things and there always ends up in a dispute. Got it. So then, you know, even it sounds like when you're talking about a security in which we'll talk about the types of securities um, in a minute, that you probably want to limit the number of people that you have on the general partnership side of the security as well. The same thing, because usually if you are doing a securities offering, then you will have some like kind of a general partner entity, which could be a joint venture at that level. Got and it. so there you want to limit that to no more than five. Every time we've ever seen more than five comments, it's always ended badly. That's very, very key, uh, key. So now there are different types of offerings. I think you kind of talked a little bit about them before, alluded to them, but there are two big ones that normally most of us see um, in the multifamily space and those that are doing syndications. And they are... So are you, are you referring to like a specified oh. offering or? Yeah, well, yeah, the types of uh, securities uh, exemptions. Are we talking about a B and a C? Oh, the securities exemptions. Okay, got yeah. it. All right, so the exemptions... Um, uh, that most people are using. So, so, well, let's just back up a little bit. So what are the rules of these exemptions? Well, there's state exemption. So if everything you're doing is all in one state, you, all your investors and the property are all in one state, then you might want to be using an intrastate exemption that, uh, you know, so if you're in California, then you would look at the California securities exemptions and see if one of those applies to what you're doing, because it might be a little less restrictive than the okay. federal exemption. Okay. But if you're not, if you're crossing state lines, you're buying property out of state, your investors are coming from multiple states, uh, then you want to be looking at the federal exemption. And so the federal exemptions that most people are using, there's about 25,000 of these things filed every year with the SEC. Um, the median raise for one of these offerings is one and a half million to $2 million. 
So, you know, not a lot of money, um, but uh, there's the two options available to you under the federal rules that most people are using. There are a couple other options, but they're not very well used. Um, so the, the five regulation D, okay, these are both under regulation D and one of them is called rule 506 B, B like boy. And the other is called rule 506 C, C like cat. So 506 B or 506, uh, 506 B or 506 C. Um, so rule 506 C has been around since like the 1980s or 506 B has been around since like the 1980s. It was originally just called rule 506. Um, so this rule allows you to raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited investors. Um, the investors can self-certify so they don't have to go through a verification process, uh, but you can't find them through any means of general advertising or solicitation. And so the way to prove that you didn't do that is to be able to demonstrate that you had a substantive pre-existing relationship with these investors before you started making offers to them. So before you started telling them about your deal. So that's 506B. The difference now, 506C, you can raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited number of verified accredited investors. So they actually have to go through a verification process within 90 days of making the investment. And uh, then you can freely advertise those offerings. So then let me go back to a 506B. You mentioned that these um, you know, non-accredited investors can, uh, and I guess uh, accredited investors can self-certify. Um, how does that work? Do you, um, you know, what does the syndicator, you know, generally the person who's the operator or someone who's putting together this, this deal, uh, what should they do? Because, you know, sometimes people can, you know, say, yeah, I, I, I have everything. How, how does one self-certify? How does a syndicator make sure that they are doing the right thing around that? And so a lot of people will use a pre-qualification form where you'll send them the uh, definition of a, a credit investor or a sophisticated investor and ask them, do you meet these qualifications? And they'll, they'll sign that. And then you can start talking to them. But um, I, I think a better avenue and, and more in line with what the SEC has in mind is for you to actually have a conversation with them and talk to them about their qualifications. And so this is a good time for you to kind of introduce what you're doing and just say, look, I'm just feeling it out to see if you, this is something you might be interested in doing. And if they say, yeah, that sounds interesting, then you can say, well, so in order for me to show you the deals that I might have in the future, I'm going to have to do a little pre-qualification here. So I'm gonna have to ask you a couple financial questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's an article on our website. If you go to syndicationattorneys.com in the library, select the articles, there's one that's called Determining Investor Suitability. And that article explains what the SEC thinks is necessary to establish a substantive pre-existing relationship. And so it talks about actually going through this uh, qualification process and then documenting what it is that you, the, you know, what questions were asked and what their answers were. And from that point forward, then you would be free to start making offers to those people. You know, they would know enough about you and what you're doing and you would know enough about them and their financial qualifications and whether your deals are suitable for them for you to be able to start making offers to them in the future that makes sense so these are phone conversations that you're having with these potential individuals i know some people have gotten to the point where automation has come in you know to play where you know they send out you know a questionnaire for someone to maybe complete or fill out 
and then follow up with that questionnaire and, and you know, answering or asking or re-asking those questions. Is that uh, something that you would um, kind of give a thumbs up to? I think that's okay as long as you also are having the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, the this SEC information alone is not going to work. Yeah, an electronic uh, relationship is probably not going to cut it with the SEC. Yeah. But, but an electronic relationship combined with a, a verification conversation is. Now, the other thing about that is that during that conversation where you're determining their suitability, you're also getting a feel for this investor, whether you like them, you want to be in business with them for the next five to seven years, because not all investors are suitable investors. You know, for you. For you. <laughs> you're 100% right about that. You know, some, you know, I've, we've all, yeah. I'll say yes. We'll say yes. Um, so then, uh, you, in this in this this article that you mentioned, you know, we talk about having a conversation and you know sending out something to them and then giving them a call. You know, a lot of people these are sometimes called touches. You know, but how many touches do you think, um, in your opinion, should should one make, if you will, in order to kind of you know, satisfy, you know, those, those, those options. Uh, so, the, so the analysis the mm -hmm. SEC went through when, and, and that's what I talk about in that article was it's not about the quantity of, you know, duration of time or a number of touches or anything like that. It's about the quality of the relationship. So yeah. actually having a knowledge of that investor's financial qualifications and whether or not the deals you're offering them are suitable for their yeah. investments, you know, like just think about what other things might apply besides finances. Well, what about the duration? You know, what if this person is saying, well, yeah, but I'm going to retire in two years and I'm going to need the money and your deals are five to seven years. Yeah, that's not yeah. a suitable person for your deal. So duration of time. Um, and, it, you know, I think you've got to take into other other factors into consideration besides just whether they're accredited or, or sophisticated. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of people, most the most models, you know, uh, again, pre COVID-19, you never know what happens after COVID-19. But pre COVID, you know, it was five years in and out. You know, now I've seen a lot more people use a little bit a little bit longer term. Um, where say they may use 10 year funding. And so then that means that they're holding on to principal for at least eight years and maybe returning it in year eight. Yeah. Right? And I recently just talked with an operator who is now moving to a legacy model where, you know, they are getting into a, maybe a 10 year, five year, 10 year, uh, maybe in the bridge loan, reposition the property, return back the capital within, you know, three to five years. And then, get over into a, um, a federal loan. I think it's a, a 40 like a year loan. HUD loan. Yeah. A HUD oh, loan. HUD loans. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. 40 years. And so then, you know, at that point in time, your, your returns are infinite because again, you return your, your principal and you can use that principal, you know, in other deals with them, but you're locked into those deals. So you continue to get that cash flow. Um, yeah, so and I, that's a pretty tried and true model. Um, it's different than what most people are doing, but yeah. it's, it's a great model to have. Uh, there's a uh, teleseminar that we did on our website with a gentleman uh, named Sam Freshman. Uh, and it's called 60 Years of Investing Experience with Sam Freshman. And uh, he, his, you know, I asked him during the interview, how much money have you raised from investors? And he said, oh, probably a billion dollars. And I said, we need to talk to Sam. We need to talk yeah. to Sam. Yeah. And I asked him, well, how did you do it? I was furiously taking notes while I was uh, interviewing him because it was just such a wealth of knowledge. But he said they use that legacy model. Oh, Their good. model is to get into deals and get them um, to get rid of the loans as quickly as possible. 
so that they own the deal 100% and they can share all the cash flow with their investors. And he said, you know, they have investors now that are grandkids of their original investors because nobody ever wants to get out of a deal. That's how you do it. That, I mean, if you're in it for the long term and not just, you know, because, you know, most of the game that I've seen so far, and I, you know, I could be very wrong. And again, there's positives and negatives to all of this. It's, you know, every five years, every 10 years, you're potentially refinancing into another agency loan or you're leaving that property and then going into, a, um, you know, a larger property. So you started off maybe with 10, 15 units. Now you move it into 30, 50 units, you know, and then you move up ultimately to the larger deals. But sometimes, you know, if you are using this other model where, you know, we're going to keep on to everything that we got, then that, that seems to be the right way to go. Now there seems to be, and I think I understand it, but I want to make sure that the other people who are listening to this, you know, who are dealing with attorneys um, and trying to build, if you will, a team, you know, that they know who is on their team and that there may be one different type of attorney. Now, you can correct me in terms of where, you know, you mentioned what your niche is, but here is what I think I see. And please help my understanding. Number one, I'm going to have an attorney that's going to help me with my operation, right? So we got Red Boot LLC. We've got to organize this in such a way. And so I have an attorney that's helping me to get the operations together. And then once we find a property, then there's an SEC attorney that I'm going, like yourself, that I'm reaching out to, to help me organize uh, the deal, because generally that's probably another LLC or ink, depending on how all of the things work out, that that property is in that that particular other entity. And then there's a third attorney potentially in the, the acquisition of the property, because that attorney is going to be responsible for actually closing the deal. Um, or is there one person that I can go to and get all of that together? Or are they three different people? So uh, I would simplify that and say there's two. Okay, so we're corporate securities attorneys, so we can do all things related to all of your companies that are involved in your syndicates or your your making offers and those kinds of things. Um, You're going to use a real estate attorney, usually in this licensed in the state where the property is located, who's going to help you with that closing. They're going to help you with the um, purchase agreement, the title, the escrow, uh, working with lender to make sure that they're getting all the information they need to file the process, the loan. And then they're also going to review the loan docs for you. So that's the real estate attorney, your corporate, securities attorney is going to set up all companies related to your matters, do your real estate investing. Um, So you might have a holding company, you might have a management company, Mm -hmm. and then for your specific offerings, you're going to have a separate investor level entity that takes title to the property, sells interest to investors. So we're going to help you with all of those uh, documents and make sure that those those three entities are all meshing together and that the operating agreements flow from one to the other. And they're very different operating agreements for each one. Uh, The operating agreement for the investor level entity is like 65 pages. The one for the management entity is around 25 pages. And the one for the title holding entity, if you need it, you don't always need a separate title holding entity, but on bigger deals you do. Um, And on that, those are, you know, 20 page documents or so. So the, each one has a very specific purpose and it's constructed in a very specific way. And you have to uh, make sure that you've got uh, the correct ownership structure in each one. So if I'm just starting out, I'm a single person uh, or, you know, me and my spouse, me and, you know, a couple of people putting together, you know, a syndication business, we can come to you and get that first entity set up. And then whenever we find a deal, we can come right back to you and you can get all of those, those things set up 
And then when we're ready to go to closing, maybe you can give us a referral for a closing attorney or settlement attorney. Sometimes, or-, or sometimes you're going to just find one, you know, in the course of you know, maybe get a referral from your broker sure. or somebody like that. But it is a really good idea to use a, a real estate attorney. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had a few clients go it alone and it's been a little painful for, for them and for the lender. Um, so, you know, unless you have specialized knowledge of that field, just from your prior profession, then, then it's always advised that you hire that, uh, that real estate attorney. And I can even tell you from my own personal experience that, uh, my husband and I syndicated a deal and, and I thought, oh, I'll just do the, you know, the purchase agreement and stuff like that. Um, it ended up costing us quite a bit of money because there, if I had been, uh, if I'd been the right attorney doing that, uh, I would have probably thought of some things that later on cost us some money and I could have included right. it in the, in the operating agreement. Cool. Cool. And so that was something. So then, okay. So my next question in terms of when to involve you, I mean, if I'm just starting out, you know, obviously I'm going to involve you, but if I'm, you know, I've got, I've got something set up already and I'm, and I'm running and I'm looking for my next, my first deal and I'm getting close to potentially negotiating something, when, when do I reach out to you, you know, before I actually put a letter of intent on, after I put a letter of intent on and get it signed, when, when do I bring you in? Uh, I, we always say when you have a signed purchase agreement is the time to uh, hire us. Okay, so not until you've got a signed purchase agreement. LOIs, you're going to do a whole lot of LOIs and and just, you know, a few of them will get negotiated. A couple of them are going to stick. When you get to that point, you need to get to the purchase agreement. And sometimes things happen between LOI and purchase agreement. You don't get the deal. So make sure you got a signed purchase agreement. Then you have a binding contract. Got it. And at that point, you can freely start talking about your deal. In fact, don't talk about it before you have that purchase agreement. Don't start telling people about your deal when you have a letter of intent because somebody else could come and steal that deal. And I've seen that happen and it it does happen, unfortunately. So um, wait till you got it locked up with a purchase agreement. That's, that's not, not, that's not going to be easy for the seller to get out of and um, then actually hire us and engage us, you know, at that point. Um, You know, we also recommend that you send somebody the, the, the first two things you should do beyond that or send somebody to your to the site from your team who can look at it and also review the financials so you know if you can get the if you can do that stuff in advance that's even better so you're talking about doing it during the due diligence phase or you haven't reviewed the financials because sometimes they won't release the financials until you got a purchase agreement oh really Um, yeah, usually you can get it out of them, but sometimes it's difficult. Um, and then, uh, you know, you don't want to spend money on anything else. Don't hire people to go do property inspections or you know, lease audits or anything like that until after you've done those three things. Because those three things, in my opinion, uh, based on my experience and the hundreds of securities offerings that we've written for other people, uh, are that uh, that's where you're going to decide whether the deal is a go or a no-go. Okay. And those three things that, are, just so we make sure we understand, those three things are, number one, sign purchase agreement, sign purchase agreement, you've reviewed the financials and someone from your team has driven through the neighborhood and uh, seen the site because, you know, you want to know, you could be driving through the neighborhood going, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not getting out of my car. Unless, no, like, thank you. <laughs> right, right. And, you and, don't I want mean, that. Yeah, some places, you know, uh, you know, workforce housing sometimes is like, uh, you know, B.C., um, type uh, class mm-hmm. properties, but sometimes you you can be right on the edge of what they will consider a D 
property. Yeah. And unless you, yeah. you have some real experience about transforming that particular property or that environment or that neighborhood, because some people are really good at that. That's uh, right. That's right. You, if that's you your model, it. then go for it. Exactly. Yeah. But if this is your first time out, no. <laughs> no, or you know, it's a major rehab, you know, I mean, because anything can look good in pictures. Yeah. But uh, when you actually get out of the car and you're just looking around, you get a feel for the place and you decide whether that's something that you want in your life. Um, so that's that's my thoughts. Cool. So what what is your um, your fee structure generally? Do you require everything up front when we do a, pur a purchase <laughs> agreement? I've got it. I say, Kim, I have it in my hand. I have a purchase agreement. I'm ready to engage you. Am I sending you? How does that work? So usually um, we will we'll do lump sum because we know what it takes. And once we've had a, we'll have a 30 minute conversation with you to decide what uh, you need. And we'll, that will happen before we've sent you the fee agreement. Um, uh, with that information, we'll be able to tell you, you know, here's going to be your lump sum fee. And um, we do ask for our fees up front because we're going to get everything done for you within 30 days. And so there's no opportunity for monthly billing. And uh, if we have to stop and wait for you to you know, pay the rest of the fee, it's just going to slow down the process. So um, we just jump on it right away. We get our team assigned. We have a, a very rigorous um, quality control process. Um, we'll do a deal structuring conference with you right away. Then we'll assign it to our team. Uh, paralegal will draft it. Uh, you know, securities attorney will review it. You'll get the documents. Then you get to review those and provide comments. We'll incorporate your comments, go through a couple rounds of revisions, and then you'll have your final docs. You'll be ready to go. Ideally, that whole process should occur while you're conducting the rest of your due diligence right. and, uh, and around the same time so that then you've got the longest possible time to go out and raise the money while the lender is processing your loan. Well, I have a question then. Um, so a lot of times, you know, when, you know, because we're syndicating, you know, a deal and we're raising somewhere, as you mentioned, on average, a million, million and a half, two million dollars, um, you know, for, you know, as you mentioned, that's not a lot of money, but for some people who haven't done it yet, <laughs> it's a lot of money, especially if you're picking them up in maybe 50,000 or hundred thousand dollar, you know, um, you know, drips and drabs so that you're looking at 10, 20 people, you know, maybe five on the, or three or four on the GP side. And then everybody else, 17 or so that are on the, um, on the, on the LP side. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is, you, you know, I'm going to spend, you know, the money up front working with you prior to me actually talking to them because that's your advice as a, a legal counsel. Well, no, my advice is that oh, you've sorry. already had those suitability conversations to them well before you have a deal because you can't establish your pre-existing relationship. It doesn't pre-exist if you already have the deal. So, so if you meet someone after you've got a deal under contract and then you've hired your securities attorney and we're working on your documents, you've got what's called a current or contemplated deal. Anybody you meet from that point forward can't be in that deal. If got it's it. a 506B, you got to put them in a future deal because the, the relationship had to predate the offering. So, um, you know, you want to so are those considered soft commitments? Because I would assume that it would well, be. Well, they're a, not really even commitments. They're just okay, you develop a database got of people. Uh, 30 or 40 people that you can call when you've got a deal because the SEC says that that median raise is uh, $2 million with 14 investors. Well, if, if you have 14 investors, the, the kind of the real estate guru rule of thumb is that you need two or three times that many people in your database to call on 
to uh, who say they're going to do your deal because only half of them or a third of them are actually going to come through. So yeah. you you know if you need 14 investors to fill your your raise, then you better have about 30 to 50 in your database to Got call it. on. And by then you would have had that suitability conversation with them. And so you already know how much they might invest. Are they going to invest 50,000 or are they going to invest a hundred thousand? So you'd have a good idea of that. And at that point, you know, nobody can commit to anything until they've seen the, the details. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you could talk to people and say, Hey, I've got this deal, uh, but you're going to want to send them over a property overview. And, uh, you know, that's going to show, you know, what you're, what you're raising money for, what the property, what, you know, what is the property, describe it. Uh, it's going to have your sources and uses of funds, like where's all the money coming from to buy it? How's it all going to be used? How much of it is going to you? How much of it is going to its property? Um, then you're going to do your projections and for five years, and then you'll also do an exit strategy. And just yeah. a little rule of thumb for anybody that's just kind of starting out doing this, that, that's, those, that's called many things. Some people call it investment summary. Some people call it a property package, property overview. It doesn't matter what you call it. It all has the same information. Yeah. Um, when you do that, make sure you tell your story in the right order. Okay, your story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Okay, this is good. How many times I see property packages where that stuff is all mixed up and you're talking about the exit strategies before you talked about the acquisition costs yeah. and then somewhere in there is the, is the projections. You know, you got to buy it, you're going to run it, and you're going to sell it. Put Can it I send you my sample deal package? Can I send that to sure. you? <laughs> of course, of course. And we have one. We have a template uh, oh, on our website. Yeah, we've got an affiliate uh, marketing company called InvestorMarketingMaterials.com. And uh, you can get to that from our syndication attorney's website, or you can go there direct. But uh, one of the things that we sell there is a property package template. Right. It's like 250 bucks. It's, it's PowerPoint. Um, or you can, once, if you become a syndication client, then we'll give that to you for free. Got it. Got it. Hopefully you can deduct that from the, the price. But what, yeah, well, you know, all, I, of, I, all your legal fees and all of your pre-closing expenses, you have to remember this. This is all reimbursable. Got it. Okay, so you've got to build that into your raise. So, you know, whatever, you're going to have some upfront expenses and you've got to have that. Your management team has to be able to collectively put that together. And those are the funds that you're putting at risk. Yeah. And maybe you're not, you're going to get reimbursed for all that. You're, maybe you're not going to leave any money in your deal. But if an investor asks you, what's your skin in the game? You're going to say, I've just put out $60,000 worth of pre-closing expenses. And if I don't close, I don't get that money back. That's go. my risk, you know, yeah. so you need to have a good, you know, 20 to 50, $60,000 to get a deal to the closing table. And you probably want to have within your management team enough to do to pursue two deals at a time. So uh, okay. think about that. And, and that's the other kind of advice on, well, uh, people ask me all the time, well, if, what should I invest in my deal? It's like, yes, but you need to keep this much in reserves or you're not going to be able to do any more deals. Got it. So even just having risk capital out there, you know, is, is, is good enough if you don't have additional money per se to put into the deal. Um, right. Especially if you have your first deal, you know, you're getting in, you're just, you know, getting in and getting that done. Now, can I ask about your fees? I know that, you know, that at the time of this recording, you know, we can't hold you to that, you know, in the future because, you know, rates do change, but what generally are your fees? 
So um, you should be budgeting around $15,000. So part of that's gonna be our legal fee and part of it's going to be uh, your out-of-pocket costs for forming LLCs. And then when we file notices with the state securities agencies, those are called blue sky notices, uh, then uh, each of those states that uh, where your investors come from, okay, then you have to file a notice in those states and they all have various fees associated with them. So then in terms of, um, let's see, I think that makes sense, and I and, and I would say that you know you you have you mentioned hundreds and hundreds of uh, of these things that you've actually built together, you know. I know when I did some research initially, uh, I believe you used to work with the man, as we call it, who wrote the book on syndication as an attorney, Gene Cho Trowbridge. I used to work with Gene. Gene and I had a very successful partnership for about eight years together. Um, we worked wonderfully together, but uh, I moved to Florida and we just and decided to to spin off, get away from California taxes. <laughs> <laughs> and I've written my own book. So, and I've written my own book, which uh, I think is, you know, it's gotten a lot of good reviews. It's called what's, How to what's Legally the name Raise your book? What's the name of your How, book? How to Legally Raise Private Money. It's a number one Amazon bestseller. And uh, you can get a free copy of it on our website if you want a digital copy, or if you want the uh, Kindle or soft copy, you can buy it on Amazon. That is perfect. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've learned about what type of uh, syndications there are. We've learned about how we should raise money. We learned about having at least, I think you, you, you've given us some, some good guide, guidelines. Generally, most of the syndications are B syndications. Am I correct in saying that? Almost all of our uh, new clients uh, always start with bees. And the reason is because you, you know, the strangers, if you're advertising, aren't going to invest with you until you have a track record. But the people who will invest with you and help you develop that track record are your family and friends and acquaintances, people that you already have met face to face. So uh, get those people in your deals. And plus, you know, all of us usually know some of those fine investors that are not accredited, but they're great investors and they're looking, they're hungry for these kinds of opportunities too. So help them out, you know, help get those family and friends into that are not accredited into your deals. And then once you've developed a track record and you've got all of those people invested with you, then that's a time to make the decision if you're going to go out and do advertised offerings or if you're going to stay with the 506Bs. I have some clients that never graduate from 506Bs because they still continue to meet non-accredited but sophisticated investors that they want to include in their deal. So they just stick with 506B. Got it. And there are on average 14 people that are in uh, syndication deals which means that you need to have at least three times that amount in your database, right? So you're talking about 50 people. And you mentioned that the average raise is a million to $2 million. So if anybody's looking to figure out, you know, what they should be doing in terms of a database and how many people to talk to, those are the averages. Now, of course, with podcasting and that sort, you know, you can get a list of larger, I think I have my list right now, probably about Ooh, four, four times that right now, about 200, you know, 250 or so. But uh, we're going back through and actually, you know, making sure, putting pins, you know, putting a to everyone uh, to make sure that we have all the, the, the exact questions that are out there. So thank you for that information. But you, you also have um, some, some additional learning opportunities for people. And do you have a podcast yet or? 
Well, we do free monthly teleseminars. We're eventually going to turn that into a podcast. We just haven't done it yet. But uh, I usually either I teach a subject or I interview somebody who has a service uh, that can enhance a syndicator's life and, and help them grow their business. So we we pick a new topic. Um, you If you sign up for our newsletter at our website at syndicationattorneys.com, then you'll get notified of all of our upcoming events and uh, we'd love to have you on them. Um, we do live questions and answers. So we talk each time, we do it on the third or fourth Thursday of every month at noon Eastern time. And um, we will uh, go do 30 or 40 minutes of lecture and then we'll go to live Q&A where you can ask any question you want. Um, once you become a client with uh, syndication attorneys, then we do, we're doing weekly masterminds right now on Fridays. So uh, weekly masterminds where any client can get on the call and uh, meet other clients. And we talk about things related to <clears throat> developing investor relationships, developing an investor marketing plan yeah. um, and uh, you know, stuff like that. So, and we do have an introductory program if you don't have a syndication right now, but you mm -hmm. want to become part of that syndication mastermind, you want to have access to us. We have a pre-syndication retainer. It's a thousand dollars. It gives you up to three hours of one-on-one -on -one legal advice. We can review your website. We can review your marketing materials or strategize with you about your plan. And we'll give you an investor marketing plan template there and an go. investor relations blueprint that will help you start kind of setting up your own policies and procedures on how you're going to go about developing these relationships and finding these investors and getting this robust database. So you don't have any fear when you got your deal under contract, you know, you got enough people to fill the deal. Got it. So if you again are beginning uh, and you want to be a part of uh, that mastermind and have access to uh, Kim's already you're budgeting about fifteen thousand uh, dollars for all of the upfront costs and uh, the cost to uh, to register those in the various states if you happen to have more than one state uh, your investors are and uh, again you know Kim has done this a thousand and one times I'm pretty sure she could do this in her sleep and I know we we've probably hit our, our time limit I'm looking here that we have but I do have a couple of quick advanced questions sure. because I, I noticed that some some of um, the uh, some of the investors that I've talked to before they kind of get a little bit more advanced a little bit and and again I I feign ignorance in some of this area but I'm pretty sure you know about it um, so there are some people, and again, this is trends. This isn't something that, you know, it's a hard and fast uh, rule. Some people want to offer, you know, press, um, to pref or not to pref is the question. Uh, what <laughs> yeah. it, <laughs> I'm getting asked that question a lot lately. Um, uh, some of my most experienced clients are, are trying to get away from it because it can really, <clears throat> it can really dampen your deal where the first two or three years you're not making any money. And there's two ways to handle that. One is um, you can defer, uh, so you could do a preferred return, but explaining to your investors that they're not gonna get that full preferred return for the first two or three years. Whatever portion of it they don't get in the first early years can be deferred and paid to them later when you either do a refinance and get some cash back, or if you, uh, when you sell the property. Okay, so, so, so you're, not, you're not obligated or, you know, pushed the first year, especially if you're turning around a deal, you may need that extra cash and you want to use, you know, that extra cash that you might get because you've got, you know, interest from, you know, 
you've gotten in order to tr turn that thing around. You don't want to necessarily return that to the investors at that point in time. You want to wait till you get the higher rents that then you'll be able to return that money. So deferring that or having that option. And now is that structured in that, that uh, operating agreement that you mentioned? And the or? waterfall. So in every operating agreement is going to have what's called a waterfall and there's going to okay. be operations waterfall. So what happens to cash flow from operations? And then there's going to be a separate one for what happens when you have a capital transaction, such as a refinance or a sale. And uh, so it, we will just in the waterfall just describe step by step. This is what you know where the first money goes. If there's money left, this is where it goes next. If there's money left, this is where it goes next. And you just go down the line until you don't have any more money. Um, so uh, usually you're going to be doing quarterly distributions, or you're going to be evaluating distributions quarterly during the time that you own and operate the property. Um, you and don't say that you give quarterly returns because you may decide, hey, this quarter we've got a really big tax bill coming up so we're going to have to withhold distributions and cover that so you then know. what do you what do you say if you you don't want to get pigeonholed into you know this just say we right? evaluate we evaluate distributions quarterly mm -hmm. and don't ever do monthly monthly is a huge mistake um people start depending on the money to you know pay pay their bills and then if you decide to withhold distributions they're they're in a jam so don't don't do monthly monthly distributions yeah. um mm -hmm. go ahead no, I, I just had another comment. I, I, stuff just keeps popping back up. Yeah, that's so fine. So you mentioned earlier in our conversation that, you know, you would have like an investor operating agreement and management operating agreement. Are those like class A, class B type things? Or is that, you know, so, so, people, so, what is that class A, class B? And then how, do they, op, you know, do a one-to-one -to, -one to what those operating agreements are? So with the, uh, the structure of your investor level entity is usually going to have two classes of members and a manager. So your, your GP entity or your management entity is going to be the manager, but it may not have any actual ownership interests in that. Um, but the members of the manager who are providing the services, uh, they can become the class B members. So you're going to sell off a portion of the interest in that company to investors in order to raise 100% of the money. Okay, so if you're going to contribute 100% of the syndication money, because generally 100% of everything you need for the entire deal, you're going to sell off a, a, a portion of your LLC, that investor level LLC, you're going to sell off a portion of that. Let's, so let's just do like 70-30 split. You sell 70% of the LLC to investors, but you're going to raise all the money for the down payment, the closing costs, legal fees for us, for your real estate attorney, um, the, uh, your acquisition fees, okay, any um, capital improvement costs plus operating capital and reserves. So that's going to be your, your uses of funds in that sources and uses of funds table I talked about, right? So um, all that, the loan plus all that that you raise from investors for all those things, okay. that becomes the total amount of the deal and right. the, uh, you know, the purchase price plus all those other things minus your loan is going to amount that you need to raise from investors. Got and it. when we do a deal, we usually have you do a target raise amount. And so that would give you exactly what you need to pay all those pre-closing expenses back, reimburse yourself, um, plus pay your acquisition fees and have a nice reserve plus all the CapEx that you want. Um, 
And then we'll also do a minimum dollar amount. So it's like, well, if we don't quite get to our target, but we're really close and we have enough money to close, but maybe we don't reimburse ourselves. Maybe we wait to take our acquisition fee, that kind of stuff. We can still close. So that's our minimum dollar amount of our offering. So when we're writing the securities offering or documents, we're saying you got to raise this minimum before you can accept or use any investor's money. Up until that, it's your own money. Okay. Now, if you can't, if you can't raise that minimum, then you return back, you know, anything that has been, um, been transferred, correct? You, re- you return all investor funds without deduction. Okay. Period. So that's where your money's at risk is that pre-closing expenses that you have to put out. If you don't close for some reason, you're not going to get those monies back. So you've just got to be aware of that. And that all has to come from your management team because you can't use investor passive investor funds for that. If you were to give back passive investor funds minus some due diligence costs, you probably wouldn't be uh, having very many people sign up with you for their next deal. Another question for you. Um, with respect to the management team, say, you know, you're a syndicator like myself, you may not have the full Have you seen people go out and maybe get an SBA loan in order to, you know, get that? I don't think you're going to be able to get an SBA loan for that, but you can go out and bring in one of your passive investors and put them on the GP side and say, hey, if you help us by putting up some of these at-risk funds, um, maybe they're even going to also help you guarantee the loan. Right. So they're going to have to be in that that management structure for the lender to be satisfied. So you just, you know, kind of elevate them and say, look, you can make some additional money for doing these things. And you're going to get a share of the management earnings, you know, maybe a portion of the fees, uh, plus a share of the manager's profits. And that's one key thing I've also learned is if anybody's going to be on the GP side, it's not there just for money. They have to be doing something, you know, to help manage that particular property. So um, that's right. Yeah, it's not just raising money. Uh, You cannot pay people um, uh, commissions for raising money for you unless they have securities licenses. Uh, you have to make sure that everybody in the GP has a meaningful role in management other than raising money. And that's what they get compensated for. Perfect. Well, listen, this has been a far reaching conversation on securities law and making sure that we do this stuff correctly. I want to say thank you again. And how can people get in contact with you? Just want to make sure you email us. Um, so the best way to contact us is uh, through our website at syndicationattorneys.com. Uh, you can schedule a 30-minute consultation there if you want to. Um, we'd be happy to talk to you. Um, uh, there's a ton of educational material on our site. If you go into the library, you're going to see uh, over 40 different articles. And these are all one or two page articles. They're not hard to read. They're written in plain English. So not a lot of illegalese. So you can learn a lot there. You can download my book if you want to. Um, you can listen to, we've been doing these free monthly teleseminars for over three years. And that one with Sam Freshman is on there. Uh, so I highly recommend every syndicator should listen to oh, yeah. that. Yeah, uh, yeah, every, every single one. He's, he's fantastic. Um, but we've got all of those recorded tele-seminars there you can listen to. And then there's FAQs. So every time somebody asks me a question that requires kind of a long drawn out answer, I write it down and I put it in there. These are the, the most commonly asked questions. And there's stuff in there about how does cash flow in a syndicate and you know what entity should I use and what title should I give myself and how should I write a biography? You know, just really practical stuff that's going to help you uh, promote yourself and uh, further your syndication business. 
Well, Kim, I want to say thank you very much for everything that you've done for Red Boot LLC and making sure that uh, I have all the education that I, I need. Uh, I know we'll be talking very soon again on a couple other things. And uh, thank you for joining us here. Thank you thank so you much so for much. having me. It's been a pleasure.